You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Mike Carlin's novel, The Ruin of Souls. If you like stories that feature puzzles to solve and love a good plot twist, we're three. You need to put The Ruin of Souls in your summer reading list right now. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Uncorking a Story, where we share the stories behind the story. That's right, the stories behind the story. We dig in to the backstory behind the authors you know and love, and some you're just discovering for the first time, which I think is great. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm very happy to share with you a very personal conversation I had with author Marilyn Peterson House about her memoir, Half of a Whole, My Fight for a Separate Life. Now, this book explores the intimate bond between a twin brother and sister, as well as the cruel turn of events that occur when one of them becomes mentally ill and the courage required to break away from a stifling religious family and a mother who blatantly favored her son. Now, I have a lot of authors pitched to me over the course of a year, and I don't interview everybody who gets pitched to me. It's just the way it goes. I, I, I don't have an infinite amount of time, but Marilyn's story stood out to me, and, and that's because, like her, I'm a twin. And of course, I have to one-up her because uh, that's uh, <laughs> I, I, it's not really part of my personality to one-up people, but I was, I was going to be somewhat self-deprecating here and say that I'm going to one-up her. Um, I'm the father of triplets. Now, I can't say that I can relate to everything that she's been through, but I can certainly empathize with her on the difficulties that come along with being a twin. And I can see it. I can see these difficulties also kind of manifest themselves as the father of, uh, of triplets. Um, you know, but, but, but if you think about it, um, or just to shed some light on it, for those of you who are not uh, multiples, um, yeah, the, the difficulties that come with being a twin aren't what you might assume, right? So for example, my wife always asked me if it ever bothered me that I had to share my birthday with two other people. And yes, you heard that right. My brother and I were born on our mother's 41st birthday. But no, it's like sharing a birthday never bothered me. And, and I don't think it ever bothered Jim. Certainly didn't bother my mother. We, we were considered the best gift uh, she could ever have had. And that's why we don't give her gifts at all. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> how egotistical would it be if we just like gave her pictures of us for her birthday, I would never consider doing that. Actually, I guess I would have considered doing that because that thought just came to my head. Um, but no, we, 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 we never had a problem sharing birthdays. And as a matter of fact, we actually enjoyed it because it meant a party. And for good measure, we'd throw in my father's birthday. And he, as he was, okay, so we're August 30th. He's August 17th. And then we'd throw in my my older brother's birthday, who's September 5th. And we, we'd have all these four birthdays celebrating on the same day. 
And um, it was just a greater cause for celebration. It was a bigger party. There were more people. And we we actually loved it. So no, sharing birthdays wasn't a problem. Um, what, what bothered me the most, and, and I think my brother would echo this, and I know my kids would echo this, is being referred to as one unit. You know, we were always referred to as the twins. Now, I'm 46 years old, about to turn 47 in, in you know, a month or so, a little bit over a month. And it still happens, right? <laughs> it still happens. We, um, we're still considered the twins. My sister, love her dearly, uh, she is not part of the birthday celebration because she had the gall to be born in July. But, um, <laughs> you know, they, they, she still refers to us as the twins. One of the twins coming over, the twins coming over, blah, blah, blah. And she says it about my kids too. Oh, what are the trips up to? And I don't begrudge her for it, um, but that's an issue. You know, being having that lack of individuality is an issue. And also up there in, in terms of kind of difficulties, right, that come with with um, being born as as part of a multiple unit is uh, the constant comparing to each other. Oh, that was the worst. You know, my mother would be like, Michael, you need to get your English grade up because Jimmy is doing so much better than you in English. Or like on the flip side, you know, I dated a lot and my brother didn't. And, and my mother would say things like, you know, Michael, I just don't understand. She absolutely does not sound like that, but this is mom voice for you right now. Michael, I don't understand why you're always going out on dates with girls and, and your brother just doesn't. And one night, because she would say this all the time, one night at the dinner table, it's me, my mom and Chris. Dad was on a business trip. My older siblings were gone. My brother, Jimmy, was probably taking a nap because this is what he would do around during time. So he, you know, Chris was over. My mother says this. Why does Jimmy not date girls? And I looked at her just dead in the eyes, stared at her. I said, Mom, Jimmy doesn't date girls because he's gay. And I was able to deliver that with with um, such a straight face. My friend Chris collapse, collapses on the floor. You know, the blood drains from my mother's face, thinking that I'm serious. And just to be clear. Jimmy's not gay. And, and, and there would be nothing wrong with it if he were. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. It was just a moment in time I decided to, you know, push the boundaries and, and see what she would do. But that memory of that joke, you know, as, as crass and, and look, 35 years later, uh, probably tasteless, right? Um, but it highlights something and it highlights the fact that, you know, to further differentiate myself from my brother, I developed this wicked sense of humor. You know, it, it helped me. Jimmy was very stoic. I mean, that, that definitely a word you would use to describe my brother, Jim. Very stoic. And I, on the other hand, had to, you know, felt perhaps, and this is all kind of after therapy for me, you know, one aspect of my personality, funny, dialed it up and really set me apart from my brother. Um, and I think I was, I was in need of, differentiation because we were always referred to as a unit. Um, and, and I see my kids doing the same thing that my kids did the same thing. So, so I have two girls and a boy, uh, and the two girls night and day from each other night and day. Um, my daughter, Maggie, tomboy, my daughter, Grace, girly girl. And, you know, Gracie loved Taylor Swift. Maggie had to hate Taylor Swift. Same thing with with silly boy bands, right? If if Gracie heard Harry Styles, she'd she'd go crazy. Maggie would just shake her head. And th the thing is, um, 
I, I was talking to my daughter Maggie one day as we were driving in the car. They're 19 now. And, you know, she was humming along to a Taylor Swift song. And I called her out on it. I'm like, I don't know you, you knew the words to, to love story. She's like, yeah, you know, um, when we were younger, I used to make fun of Grace for listening to Taylor Swift, but but I actually actually like Taylor Swift. And I kind of, you know, gave it to her a little bit. And, and she's like, yeah, you know, I just I felt like I needed to differentiate myself, you know, um, and that's um, that's the truth. You know, you, you feel that pressure. You feel that pressure. Um, but here's the thing. This isn't my story. You, you didn't come. You didn't come to tune into this to to hear about me or my kids. Or maybe you did. I don't know. Um, but I'd like to think you're here because you're really interested in what Marilyn Peter House has to say. Um, now, this is a story uh, that features um, sexism, favoritism, a strict religious upbringing, uh, also has uh, mental illness in there. Yet she winds up weaving in these themes of forgiveness and reconciliation throughout. And I think that that's what really um, kind of hits home for me. While all this negative stuff was there, you know, and I would even characterize it as as traumatic because she was in such a and you'll hear her talk about it. I mean, she was in such a um, a rush to to leave this part of her life behind, leave this strict upbringing behind. Yet there was also this element of forgiveness and reconciliation in there, which I think is beautiful and, and really what what ties her her memoir together. So just as a reminder here, her memoir, Half of a Whole, My Fight for a Separate Life, will be available for sale starting June 8th. And um, since you can pick it up wherever books are sold, I'm going to urge you to consider showing some love and support to your local independently owned bookstore. Because small businesses, let's face it, need your help more than ever these days. Though if you must buy it online... And I know some people might have to because they don't have access to a local independently owned bookstore. Please consider shopping at bookshop.org as they always donate a percentage of sales uh, to support independent bookstores. So without further ado, here is my interview with author Marilyn Peter House. I grew up in a, on a farm out on the western side of Minnesota, which is considered part of the plains, and uh, grew up on a farm about seven miles from a town of 700 people. So my twin and I spent all our time together when we were young playing, and then I went to a one, we went to a one-room school for six years, uh, 20 students in six grades. It was eight grades when we started, then six grades and then traveled on a bus to the nearest towns, uh, seven miles away for high school. And by then I was beginning to feel the isolation of living so far away from, it seemed to me the world was going on somewhere and I was missing it. And by then my twin and I had started chafing against each other a bit in adolescence. So I couldn't wait to escape. And so I escaped to where everybody escaped to, which was Minneapolis. And so I went to uh, Augsburg College, now Augsburg University there, and got my bachelor's, uh, Bachelor of Arts degree, and then uh, married and moved to the East Coast with my husband, and we raised three children. And when the, I got, when the youngest one got on the bus to go to kindergarten, I went back to school and got an MBA. And 
Uh, then I launched myself into a career okay. and worked, uh, traveled internationally and worked in that career until I retired at age 67. And that's when I had the chance to write my book, the book that had been burning in my heart that I really wanted to write. Um, so that's kind of the history of uh, takes you up to the point where I picked up my pen. And what, what was that uh, process like for you when, you when you started? How would you characterize that? Well, uh, you know, I had this burning story that I wanted to tell, but I didn't know really how to do creative writing or writing. So I started working on the craft and I took a workshop uh, that met weekly to learn how to write. I studied books on craft. I, I uh, took... I. Um, had journals that I read. And as I was learning the craft, I was writing what I call cute little stories about living on the farm. But my co-writer said, you know, every story you write is about your twin, has your twin in it. Why don't you write that story? And that was the story I really wanted to write. And so when I started that story, uh, it's like uncorking a story. The story just came out and uh, I wrote. It took me um, most, you know, I started in my early 70s. So it took me, I think, seven years to finish the writing process. Um, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting process because I had to dig down deeper and deeper into the layers as I was writing. So it was a process that helped me to come to understand much more the things that I was writing about. And I, I came to understand the people I was writing about, uh, the motivations, um, what, what caused us to do the things we did. And uh, so the process was, and I've, I found also that the process threw me right back into the time that I was writing about. So I, I went through those deep emotions all over again, which in a way was good because then I could kind of capture them on the page. So it was a, an exhausting but a liberating process as well. Well, it sounds like a therapeutic process um, to kind of go back and, and, and revisit a period of time in your life, which it sounds like had some, there was some struggle there and, um, you know, you, you know, just to be you know, clear, not clear here, but just to let you know, I actually uh, we have something in common in that I have a twin brother. Um, he uh, we're fraternal twins. We're not identical. And I'm actually the father of triplets. So there's a lot of a lot of multiples going on, uh, going wow. on in this conversation. <laughs> um, but tell me, I mean, what, why, why, why do you suppose all of these stories that you were trying to write? you know, had to do with your twin? What, what, why do you think that well, that was? Uh, you know, twins, I'm all, uh, obviously also a fraternal twin, but uh, twins, uh, you know, I, my, there was a shocking story that my mother um, told me or wrote in, in a, our baby books that I didn't discover till much later in life, that she had kept me in my walker for three months after I had walked across a room so that I wouldn't walk before my twin brother. And that was the start of, uh, of a lifetime uh, attempt on her part to champion my twin, who was the firstborn son. He was to be the leader of the family. He was to take on responsibility for the family. He was to take over the farm. And so anything I did that uh, she interpreted as 
as being successful, she felt diminished my twin. So she took upon herself kind of her mission in life to make my twin into the son my father wanted. So um, that was very problematic, uh, obviously, in my relationship with her. And the thing about twins is uh, when they are supposed to individuate, separate, define themselves as separate people, sometimes they take their twin into their own self-boundary. And that's really what I had done. So my twin was, in a way, an extension of myself. And so um, when I was writing about my twin, um, it was it took into account all these different aspects of, of what a twin, uh, of a relationship with a twin was, was like. And so it was a very powerful theme for me to, to kind of work my way through all of that. And of course, his mental illness made everything very, very complicated and difficult. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's, you know, we, we have to, I have, and I want to remind my, my listeners who may not know the story um, as well, which of course is documented in, in your uh, forthcoming book. I believe it comes out tomorrow. Um, yes. You know, they, they, they're, they're, there's a couple of things that, that, I, that, that I think are going on. Um, you've got uh, obviously dynamics between, um, you know, boys and girls, but there's also, I mean, there's a time period here that um, you guys were born when in the in the 1940s was it or 1941 okay um, and so there's there, there there's a, a a time in culture that you know for for many of us is quite different than than it is right now so can, can you paint a little bit more of a picture of of really what what life was like on that farm back in you know, back in 1941 and, and, and during the early parts of your childhood. And um, yeah, that, that would be great. Yes. Um, yes. Um, in the early parts of my childhood, it was uh, a, a wonderful place to grow up. Um, my twin and I spent our time. We had, we had very little supervision because, of course, farm wives have enormous amounts of work to do, as do farmers. And so my twin and I had lots of time to ourselves. We explored the farm. We played. We discovered new litters of kittens. We fed corn to the pigs. We explored uh, the stream nearby that led to a lake. So that was a wonderful time. And then we went, as I mentioned, to the one-room country school, which was also a very sheltered environment. It was neighbors within a nine-square-mile radius that went to this school. So it was like our brothers and sisters were in the same room we were, and we knew all the people. So that was very sheltered. Um, It was only when I became an adolescent that I began to feel the isolation. And getting on the bus to go to the town school sounds like a small deal, but for us, it was a major transition because we then ran into kids who who weren't raised on a farm and had, uh, they seemed to know everything, to be very sophisticated, things that we farm kids just didn't know. So it wasn't until we were adolescents that I began to feel um, isolated. And also I was raised, we were raised in a fundamentalist evangelical family so we weren't allowed to dance. We weren't allowed to um, go to movies. We weren't allowed to play cards. And of course, that's what teenagers want to do. So I felt isolated from our friends as well. And uh, that was when I really started to want to uh, what I call escape, thinking that, you know, the world out there was going was going on and I was missing it. 
Gotcha. Okay. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for that. But, you know, as you're talking, are, are you familiar with the movie Footloose at all? Not really. No. <laughs> there was well, there was a movie in, uh, I guess it was the 1980s now, starring uh, Kevin Bacon and John Lithgow. And, and he's sort of this outsider who moves to this, like, you know, very religious fundamentalist town. And he's all about dancing and he wants to bring dancing to the town and and uh, the, the the elders, if you were, were were uh, were not his biggest fan, let's say. But um, enough about nineteen uh, eighties pop culture. Um, when when <laughs> when you moved east, it sounds like you had you had quite an adventure. So you 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 moved out here, um, and and you had quite the career. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, um, uh, I did get my MBA, and then I launched myself into a career. I worked uh, for one company for about 12 years, and then I moved to another company, both locally. And uh, uh, I worked for Crane & Company that makes all the currency paper for the United States uh, currency. And I worked for them for about another uh, 12 or 15 years. And that involved traveling internationally, meeting with um, producers of of banknote paper, of the security features, the many security features that are in the paper. And so uh, I traveled to, you know, a number of places. Sometimes I'd be gone for several weeks at a time. And um, uh, that was uh, a, a challenge, you know, um, but I enjoyed it. I think in many ways, I was trying to prove to my father, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting way to put it, that I could be successful in a man's world. Um, because when I was growing up, uh, my father, he looked at me one time straight, straight in my face and said, women can't handle numbers. And I excelled at math. I mean, I had brought home straight A's in math all the way through high school. And he said to me, women can't handle numbers. And I said, well, dad, you know, how can you say that when I am good at math? And it was like um, he he just wouldn't respond. It, it did not fit into with his perception of the way things should be, that in his mind, women were not good at math. And so I thought, well, am I not a woman? <laughs> What's what what is going on here? It was very interesting. So to finish that yeah, up, geez, so uh, I think that yeah. part of me wanted to, to be successful in a man's world in a way to show my father, who is no longer alive, that I could I could succeed in a world where numbers were very important. So was there ever a, a reconciliation there or did he ever admit to it? I mean, were you ever able to convince him that, hey, look, look what I've done and look at you know, this is my success and. Well, he, he died before I finished my MBA. So I never had a chance to have that particular conversation with him, but my father and I were actually very close. I think I defied him. I argued with him. I debated with him. And I think, you know, we both actually, that was how we connected. And so I think he did have a great deal of respect for me. And sometimes I'd hear him use my arguments when he was in other discussions and vice versa. I'd sometimes use his arguments. So my father and I, I think were really very close. It was just that I don't think I made very many dents in his uh, bias against what women's capabilities were. Sure, sure. And um, what about your mom? I know, I mean, it just it, early days, you, you know, you mentioned um, 
her keeping you in a walker uh, so you wouldn't walk before your brother. Um, how, how would you characterize your relationship with your mother throughout your life? Well, the, my relationship, I loved my mother. I adored my mother. And, you know, she worked so hard to take care of the family and feed the family. And um, but um, her criticism of me, the real the real um, heartbreaking event for me was when I had just finished college and um, I went uh, on a trip with a friend and she thought I had stepped away from her religious uh, upbringing, you know, that that the upbringing she had um, wanted us to have. And so she returned a letter I had written to her, uh, a, a letter of love. She returned, she mailed it back to me with a note saying, you are not the daughter I thought you were. It it broke my heart. It really broke my heart. And um, and in 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 dealing with it, I was working in Minneapolis at the time. I built an insulated wall around myself because so she, I I the letter she returned, I ended up shredding it and burning it, and um, I built an insulated wall around myself to protect myself from her. And when I went into therapy after my brother's breakdown, my therapist said something I've never forgotten. When I told him that story, he said, "She lost a daughter." but you lost a mother. And I think um, that was uh, the, the most painful event with my mother. And then um, she continued to criticize me, to demean my, like my career. <laughs> I laughed. I'm laughing because one time I called her, she called me at work and I was preparing to go on a two week trip to Japan. And so I was telling her about it and her question was, well, who's going to cook for George? George is my husband. <laughs> that was her only question. Who's going to cook for George? She could not anticipate, she could not imagine that a woman should be traveling for business when she was supposed to be home with her husband. So my mother was very critical of me and critical of my successes. And it was only 15 years after I finished therapy that I was able to surface that rage I had buried and I was able to confront my mother. And it was, I shouted, I remember I had never, I had never stood up to her directly. Um, and I can remember shouting at her, it was over the telephone saying, it's not my fault, I didn't do it. And it was about a specific incident, but it was really about making me feel responsible for my twin and his issues. And um, at that point, um, I, I did confront her and she, uh, for a brief, small moment, was able to, to admit she hadn't been fair to me. And But by that point, um, I had, uh, you know, once, once I kind of opened up that um, volcano of feelings, um, I was able to work my way through it. And, um, and I ended up um, my mother slid into dementia um, and uh, spent the last six years in a nursing home. But I felt very warm and protective of her at that point. So um, it's a, a story, I think, of acceptance and forgiveness and um, uh, uh, work and, and actually working my way through all those issues. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about your your mother and father. I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about your brother. Um, you know, just let, t talk to me a little bit about your relationship with him and, and how it sort of changed and evolved over the years. 
Well, when we started out, when we were young, of course, we were full-time, all-day um, playmates. And, um, and he was my life and I was his life, and we were extremely close. And then as he reached adolescence, he, um, uh, he became um, very, it was my mother almost had to drag him out of bed to get him off to catch the bus for school. And he became uh, very antagonistic to uh, my father and he, his relationship um, became very difficult. And uh, he and I began to chafe against each other. And so part of the reason I wanted to escape was to escape from him uh, and his troubles, not him, but him and his troubles. And so then he, uh, after we graduated from college, um, after I graduated from college, he, my mother made him go to Augsburg College as well as me. And he dropped out after a year and a half. And then he went home and, and worked on the farm for a while. And then he went into the military. And um, when he came home from the military, he visited us. Uh, by then I was married. And that was when I began to wonder if something wasn't quite right with him. His, uh, he had this uh, rage that he had never shown before. He had always been a calm, um, quiet person. And uh, so in the 20s um, was when I began to wonder about his mental health, but I was busy raising three small children living on the East Coast. And then when he had his we went back to my mother's place for a holiday uh, and he had his psychotic breakdown and I had to call the police and, uh, and have them come and really drag him out of the place and get him into the hospital. And that was when he pulled me back into his life. I, he, you know, that was a very dramatic way of pulling me back in his life. And his breakdown, um, uh, as I mentioned, was uh, triggered a breakdown in me, a quiet breakdown where I went into therapy for three and a half years. I had a huge ocean of loss over my brother. We had that intense bonding and it had been shattered in some kind of a way. And I had no idea of how much grief I had, I had stashed away, I had pushed aside. And so um, opening that up and, and working my through it was, was life-saving for me, really. And um, but every time, so my brother had a, a series of manic breakdowns um, over the years, and each time he had a manic episode, he would accuse me of destroying his life. He would say I had him labeled, and so things that he did that would normally be considered normal would cause him to be hospitalized, and he would. Uh, claim that it was my fault because, you know, the fact that I had called the police and he had been labeled. But what I found was when he, uh, when the manic episodes were over and he went back on his medications, the bonds we had developed as early in our lives were still there, still intact. And so um, I would, uh, I knew that no matter how much he raged at me, that uh, the love was still there. And so um, I would go and visit him when he was in the psychiatric ward. I would go and visit him. He, he um, pulled himself away from the family for many years. I would go and I would, when we flew into Minneapolis, I'd say, would you meet us at some place or a restaurant? We'd have lunch together. And he always would. And we'd have a, a very nice time. Um, so I found ways to connect with him um, between his even during his episodes, I found ways to connect with him. And only, only in the last years of his life 
um, did I actually decided that I wanted to ask him about his memory of our experiences on the farm. So we actually talked about some of the things he remembered growing up. And he, interestingly to me, said he knew mother favored him. He knew that. And um, uh, so many of the things I'd been struggling with, um, he was completely aware of. Wow. How, by him admitting that, how did that impact your relationship with him? It, uh, it just, um, opened up a whole lot of, um, of my, uh, feelings for him that, um, that it, that he had shared that, that what hadn't, hadn't been good for me hadn't been good for him either. And that we really shared a mutual, um, uh, understanding of what had happened with our parents. Um, my mother had favored him and my dad had favored me and it, it had not been good for anybody. So I felt very warm towards him at that point um, that, uh, that we could actually talk openly and honestly about it. Now, I'm talking about my twin uh, Scandinavian, you know, a few words. So a short letter is what I'm talking about, but that short letter contains so much uh, for me. Yeah. Now you mentioned, um, I mean, you alluded to the fact that your, your twin has, has passed away. Um, when, when did he die? He died when he was 67. So the year I retired, I was the same year he died. Okay. And, and how, um, how did you react that was to his? In- 2009, yeah. in 2009. Okay. Um, I how, was able did- to, uh, he, by that point, he, yeah, by that point, he was uh, ridden with cancer and he was still working at a part-time job and his daughter, his wonderful daughter, whom I didn't even know at that time because he'd kind of kept her from us, um, we couldn't find him. We didn't know where he'd gone. He didn't answer his telephone. And finally, through the man, his manager at work, we found that he had checked himself into the hospital. And um, so my husband and I flew to Minneapolis to see him in the hospital. So I spent the last four or five days with him in the hospital and sat at his bedside um, and stayed with him as he, you know, uh, and was with him uh, when he died. And we had a very close connection, which I talk about in the book at the, at the final end. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had a little bit of closure there. Yes, definitely. When he, uh, when he passed away, you were able to be with him and Yeah. Did um did your uh did your children yes. get to know yes. him at all? I'm curious. Yes, um they did. And uh when they were there when he had a psychotic episode, it was terrifying. Uh I don't capture a whole lot of that in the book because it's like a over you know, you you don't need to tell the whole story. But um he uh he was becoming, he was having hallucinations and he was becoming very loud and overbearing and overpowering. And the children were frightened. And, um, when, when I had to finally call the police, um, one of our children took his daughter, one of our children took his daughter down into a separate room to protect her and 
two of our children went to watch for the police when they came. So, you know, they were they were helping out to get get us through. It was chaos. It was it was utter chaos trying to get him out uh, and into the hospital. So, yes, they um, they were very frightened. And but they also saw him when he was calm. Uh, not as much as I would have liked, because by the time that this happened, he had so many periods where he was manic and then um, we wouldn't see him. So they didn't get to know him really well. But they were they were they were worried that I was also going to become um, have bipolar disorder. So, yeah, Um the, you know, I wish that they could have seen the softer side of my brother, the brother that wasn't affected by his mental illness. Um, I wish they could have known that part of him, but um, there wasn't much opportunity for that. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunate. But I mean, he that side of him can live on through your your memory of him and perhaps uh, your, your storytelling uh, to, to, to your children and grandchildren about uh, you know their, their uncle and great uncle. Yes. And. And the wonderful thing is, is my brother, um, of course, he was married and had a daughter. And since uh, at the time of his death, uh, that's when I really got to know her. She's a wonderful young woman. She's smart. She's funny. She's resilient. Um, and she's just a wonderful legacy of my brother. And I feel very close to her now. And our children, that, of course, she's their cousin. And they they love her. They think she's great. So that's a, a wonderful um, a legacy, my brother, for all of us. Well, the book comes out tomorrow. Um, where will it be available for people to buy, Marilyn? Well, you should be able to get it at any local bookstore. You can buy it on Amazon. I guess you can go to Post Hill Press, who published it, and they would be able to tell you how to get it. Um, so, um, uh, I think any of the normal ways you would buy a book. So, and I hope that, uh, I hope that lots of readers will buy it. Um, and read I do it. too. It sounds like a, a wonderful story, a deep story, uh, and certainly a very personal story. Um, so I, I congratulate you on, uh, on the launch of it tomorrow. I know yes. it's a big day, yes, an, an exciting day. And, uh, do you have any, uh, do you have a launch party planned or any, any other launch events? Um, Yes. Yes, actually, my writing teacher is uh, having a party for me on Wednesday, day after tomorrow, and 50 of my women writing friends and friends in general are coming to the party. And so that's uh, a launching party. And then I have another friend who's giving me a party. And then in Minnesota, my sister is having a party at the Kirkhoven Civic Center, which is in the town of 700, a book signing there. So those three parties are already on the way. So um, that will be fun. Well, I have to say I need to write another book so I can have some parties. <laughs> now that I can see other human beings again, it's, uh, you know, it'd be, uh, it would be, uh, a, a good to, to get back out yes, in the world. So it must yes. feel great to, to have yes. all the, this excitement around the launch of this but, book. Yes. And it works out perfectly because we can, um, with the pandemic restrictions just being loosened, we can actually see each other physically and we can, you know, be, uh, uh, but, uh we can, do it without masks. I think everyone I know has been vaccinated. Well, that's a good thing. So that's a great um, pleasure to be able to, after this long duration, 
to uh, do it all in yeah. person. Yeah, well, it sounds great. I um, I encourage all of my listeners uh, to uh, to go out and buy this book. Um, and actually, why don't you give a, a plug for it, Marilyn? Why don't you give out the full title and uh, and we can end on that one. Yes, the book is called Half of a Whole, My Fight for a Separate Life. And it's really about, uh, as I've talked about, the close attachment of twins. It's about the devastating impact of mental illness on my twin, on me, and on our relationship. And it's about how difficult it is to break away um, from the people you love in order to live your own life, to live life on your own terms. And I hope that uh, people who are interested in mental illness, most most families have some know someone or have someone who has mental illness, will find uh, uh, the story to uh, uh, have interest for them. Um, and people who um, are in difficult relationships with their mother, uh, sadly, that's many people as well, that they will also be interested in that. And all those people who want to know what it was like growing up on a farm in Minnesota uh, when you were a kid, uh, they should find it interesting too. So I would hope that many people would find many reasons to be interested in this book. And it takes you through some hard times, but there are joyous times as well. So um um, so I think that's about what I have to there say. There we go. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Marilyn. I enjoyed this conversation. And thank you, Mike, for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Well, there you have it. My interview with Marilyn Peterson house. Wow. What a conversation. Um, just a very inspiring story. Uh, she's certainly been through a lot. I love the theme of kind of breaking away and kind of, you know, making a, a separate life for herself, but also, you know, kind of coming back, you know, reconciling, um, you know, reconciling with her mother, uh, the relationship she had with her father, and of course, kind of coming back with, uh, with her brother. And she kind of, uh, you know, just um, kind of having those kind of tough conversations that that we have in families from time to time but I, I i do think it's a great story in a way it's kind of a love story a love story for uh for herself um because uh she was able to uh to really take something very negative and and bring it into some positive territory so as a reminder uh her book will be out tomorrow her book of course uh, a memoir called half of a whole my fight for a separate life it is available tomorrow i say tomorrow you may not be listening to this on June 7th. You might be listening to this on June uh, 9th, in which case the book's already out. Uh, the book will be out June 8th. How about that? We'll be we'll be very clear. The book will be out uh, June 8th. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. Of course, uh, we'd, uh, we'd uh, encourage you to purchase it from an independently owned bookstore. Show the mom and pops of the world some love after this time of uh, hardship, if you will. That's probably, probably an understatement, right? Um, so be sure to pick up the book. Um, and if you must buy it online, of course, there's bookshop.org where uh, sales, all, proceeds from all sales go to support local independently owned bookstores. Honestly, I have no idea how they do that, but they do. And I think it's a good thing. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, author and podcaster extraordinaire, Mike Carlin, please visit MikeCarlin.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. 
there you'll be able to listen to some past episodes of Uncorking a Story, as well as check out some of my writing. As I mentioned at the top of this episode, uh, my latest novel, The Ruin of Souls, is available for sale right now. So you go and buy that wherever books are sold. And uh, for all the hardworking people here at Uncorking a Story, uh, you can do us all a favor by doing the following. Number one, uh, go to wherever you get your podcast and rate us. Maybe give us a review. That will uh, we'll always put a little wind in our sails, as well as um, subscribe. Hit that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on all the forthcoming episodes of Uncorking Story, as well as listen to some old ones as well. So that's it for all the aforementioned hardworking men, women, and dogs here at Uncorking Story, because we do have a few of those. Sometimes you might hear them in the background. This is Mike Carlin saying thanks for listening, and until next time. We're just going to let the blues play out a little bit here. Enjoy the blues. It's not me playing, though I wish I could play this good. <laughs>